Chapter Eleven, Part Two of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Eleven, Part Two. The gatekeeper had permitted them to enter the enclosure, not daring to stop the woman on the count's arm. Nana, full of pride, on at length placing her foot on that forbidden spot, studied her poses and walked slowly along in front of the ladies seated at the foot of the stands. On ten rows of chairs there was a deep mass of elegant costumes, blending their gay colors in the open air. Chairs were turned round. Friends had formed into groups just as they chanced to meet, the same as in some public garden with children playing around. And higher up, the tiers of the stands were filled to overflowing, whilst the delicate framework cast its shadows over the light-colored garments. Nana stared at the ladies. She made a point of looking fixedly at Countess Sabine, then, as she passed in front of the imperial pavilion, the sight of Mufa standing up near the empress in all his official dignity amused her immensely. "'Oh, how stupid he looks!' said she out loud to Vendeuvre. She wished to see everything. This bit of a park with its lawns and its groups of trees did not strike her as very interesting. A refreshment contractor had set up a large bar near the railings. Beneath an immense circular thatched roof, a crowd of men were shouting and gesticulating. This was the betting ring. Close by were some empty horse-boxes, and, to her disappointment, she merely beheld the horse of a gendarme. Then there was the paddock, a little more than a hundred yards round, where a stable-lad was walking Valerio too, well covered up. And that was all, with the exception of a number of men on the gravel paths, wearing their orange-colored tickets in their buttonholes, and a continual promenade of people in the open galleries of the stands, which interested her for a moment. But really... It wasn't worth while being upset because one was kept out of there. Degonet and Faucherie, who were passing, bowed to her. She beckoned to them so they were obliged to draw near, and she launched into abuse of the enclosure. Then, interrupting herself, she exclaimed, Allô, there's the Marquis de Choix. How old he's looking! He's doing for himself, the old rogue. Is he still as unruly as ever? Then Degonet related the old fellow's last prank the story of the day before which had not then got about. After hovering around for months he had just given Gaga, it was said, thirty thousand francs for her daughter Amélie. "'Well, it's abominable!' exclaimed Nana indignantly. "'It's a fine thing to have daughters. But, now I think of it, it must have been Lily that I saw over there in the brougham with a lady. I thought I knew the face. The old fellow must have brought her out.' Vendeuvre was not listening, but stood by impatiently and anxious to get rid of her. However, Faucherie having said that if she had not seen the bookmaker she had not seen anything, the Count was obliged to take her to these in spite of his visible reluctance. This time she was satisfied. It was really very curious. In an open space composed of a series of grass plots bordered by young chestnut trees and shaded by tender green leaves, a compact line of bookmakers forming a vast circle as though at a fair awaited those desirous of betting. In order to overlook the crowd, they were standing on wooden benches. They had posted up their betting list against the trees, whilst, with an eye ever on the watch, they at the least sign made notes of bets so rapidly that some of the spectators gazed at them with open mouths and without comprehending. All was confusion, odds were shouted out, and exclamations greeted the unexpected changes in the prices and now and again, increasing the hubbub, scouts running at full speed would arrive and call out at the top of their voices the news of a start or a finish. 
which would raise a long murmur midst all that fever for gambling beneath the shining sun. How funny they are, murmured Nana, highly amused. Their faces all look as though they were turned inside out. You see that big one there? Well, I shouldn't care to meet him by myself in the middle of a wood. But Vendeuvre pointed out to her a bookmaker, an assistant in a draper's shop who had made three millions in two years. Slim, delicate-looking, and fair, he was treated by everyone with the greatest respect. He was spoken to smilingly, and people stood by to look at him. They were at last about to leave when Vendeuvre nodded to another bookmaker who thereupon ventured to call to him. He was one of his old coachmen, an enormous fellow with shoulders like an ox and a very red face. Now that he was tempting fortune on the race-course, with a capital of doubtful origin, the Count gave him a helping hand, commissioning him with his secret betting, and always treating him as a servant from whom one has nothing to hide. In spite of this protection, the fellow had lost some very heavy sums one after another, and he also was playing his last card on that day, his eyes all bloodshot, and himself on the verge of a fit of apoplexy. "'Well, Maréchal,' asked Vendeuvre in a low voice, "'how much have you against?' Five thousand louis, sir, replied the bookmaker, also speaking low. That's good, isn't it? I must admit that I've lowered the price. I've laid the odds at three to one. Vendeuvre looked greatly annoyed. No, no, I won't have it. Put it back at two to one at once. I will never tell you anything again, Marichal. Oh, but what can that matter to you now, sir? resumed the other with a humble smile of a confederate. I had to attract the people so as to place your two thousand louis. Then Vendeuvre made him give over. But as he went away, Marichal, recollecting something, regretted that he had not questioned him respecting his filly's rise in price. He was in a pretty mess if the filly had a chance, for he had taken two hundred louis about her laying fifty to one against. Nana could not make anything out of the words whispered by the Count, but she did not dare question him again. He seemed more nervous than ever, and abruptly placed her under the care of La Bordette, whom they found waiting at the entrance to the weighing-place. "'You must take her back,' said he. "'I have something to attend to. Good-bye.' And he went inside. It was a narrow apartment with a low ceiling and almost filled with a big weighing-machine. It was like the room where luggage is weighed at a small suburban station. Nana was again greatly disappointed. She had figured to herself a very vast affair, a monumental apparatus for weighing the horses. What, they only weighed the jockeys? Then there was no need to make such a fuss about it. Seated in the scales, a jockey, looking an awful fool, with his saddle and harness on his knees, was waiting till a stout man in an overcoat had taken his weight, whilst a stable lad at the door held the horse, Cousinus, around which the crowd gathered, silent and wrapped in thought. They were clearing the course. La Bordette hurried Nana, but he returned a few steps to show her a little fellow talking to Vendeuvre apart from the others. "'Look, there's Price,' said he. "'Ah, oh, yes, he rides me,' she murmured with a laugh. She thought him very ugly. To her, all the jockeys looked like fools, no doubt,' said she, because they were not allowed to grow. That one, a man of forty, had the appearance of an old, dried-up child with a long, thin face, looking hard and death-like and full of wrinkles.' His body was so naughty, so reduced, that the blue jacket with white sleeves seemed to cover a piece of wood. No, she resumed as they moved away, you know he isn't my fancy. A mob still crowded the course, the wet trodden grass of which looked almost black. 
the crowd pressed in front of the boards placed very high up on iron posts which exhibited the numbers of the starters and with raised heads greeted uproariously each number that an electric wire communicating with the weighing place made appear some gentlemen were ticking their racing cards pichenette having been scratched by his owner caused a slight commotion nana however simply passed by on la bordette's arm the bell was ringing persistently for the course to be cleared ah my friends said she as she re-entered her landau it's all humbug their enclosure everyone about applauded her return bravo nana nana is restored to us how stupid they were did they think her one to give them the slip she returned at the right time attention it was going to begin and the champagne was forgotten everyone left off drinking but nana was surprised to find gaga in her carriage with bijou and little louis on her knees gaga had come there for the sake of being near la faloise though she pretended that she had done so because she so longed to kiss the baby she adored children ah by the way and lily asked nana it's she is it not in that old fellow's brougham over there i've just been told something that isn't very creditable gaga assumed a most grieved expression of countenance my dear it has made me quite ill said she woefully i cried so much yesterday i was obliged to keep my bed all day and even this morning i was afraid i should not be able to come well you know what my notion was i did not wish her to do as she has done i had her brought up in a convent and intended getting her well married and she always had the best advice and was constantly looked after well my dear she would have her own way oh we had such a scene bitter tears unpleasant words until it ended by my slapping her face she felt so dull she would try the change then when she took it into her head to say it's not you anyhow who have the right to prevent me i said to her you're a wretch you dishonor us be off and so off she went but i consented to make the best arrangement i could for her however there's my last hope gone and i had been planning ah such grand things the sounds of a quarrel caused them to stand up it was georges who was defending vendeuvre against several vague rumors that were passing from group to group how absurd to say that he no longer believes in his horse exclaimed the young man only yesterday at the club he backed lusignan to the extent of a thousand louis yes i was there added philippe and he didn't back nana for a single louis if nana's got to ten to one it's not owing to him it's ridiculous to give people credit for so much calculation besides what interest could he have in behaving so la bordette listened in a quiet sort of way and shrugging his shoulders observed let them say what they like they must talk of something the count has just laid another five hundred louis at least on lusignan and if he's backed nana for a hundred it's merely because an owner must show some faith in his horses what the devil can it matter to us yelled la faloise waving his arms spirit will win france is nowhere bravo england a tremor passed slowly through the crowd whilst a fresh peal of the bell announced the arrival of the horses at the starting-place then nana to obtain a better view stood up on one of the seats of her landau treading on the bouquets of forget-me-nots and roses with a glance round she took in the vast horizon 
At this last moment, when the excitement was at fever heat, she beheld first of all the empty course, enclosed by its grey barriers, along which policemen were stationed at intervals, and the broad band of muddy grass before her became greener and greener in the distance, until it merged into a soft, velvety carpet. Then, as she lowered her eyes and gazed around in her immediate vicinity, she saw an ever-moving crowd standing on tiptoe or clambering on to the vehicles, excited and animated by the same passion, with the horses neighing, the refreshment tents shaking in the wind, and riders on their steeds in the midst of the foot-passengers hastening to the barriers. Whilst, when she looked at the stands on the other side of the course, the people seemed smaller, the mass of heads appeared merely a medley of colours filling the paths, the benches, and the terraces beneath the dull sky. And she could see the plain beyond. Behind the ivy-covered windmill, to the right, there was a background of meadows, intersected with plantations. In front, as far as the Seine, which flowed at the foot of the hill, park-like avenues, along which interminable rows of immovable vehicles were waiting, crossed each other. Then on the left, towards Boulogne, the country spreading out again opened into a view of the bluey heights of Meudon, intercepted only by a row of palonias, the rosy tufts of which without a single leaf formed a sheet of vivid crimson. People still continued to arrive. Numbers were hastening from over there like so many ants as they wended their way along a narrow path which crossed the fields. Whilst far off, in the direction of Paris, the spectators who did not pay, a host who camped out in the wood formed a long black moving line under the trees on the outskirts of the bois. But suddenly, a feeling of gaiety excited the hundred thousand souls who covered that bit of a field, with a commotion of insects disporting themselves beneath the vast sky. The sun, which had been hidden for the last quarter of an hour, reappeared and shone in a flood of light, and everything sparkled once more. The women's parasols looked like innumerable shields of gold above the crowd. Everyone applauded the sun, gay laughter saluted it, and arms were thrust out to draw aside the clouds. At this moment a police officer appeared walking alone along the centre of the now deserted course. Higher up, towards the left, a man could be seen holding a red flag in his hand. "'That's the starter, the Baron de Mauriac,' replied La Bordette to a question of Nana's. Among the men surrounding the young woman, and who pressed even onto the steps of her landau, there arose a hubbub of exclamations, of sentences left unfinished in the flush of first impressions. Philippe and Georges, Bordenave, La Faloise could not keep quiet. "'Don't push. Let me see. Ah, the judge is entering his box. Did you say it was Monsieur de Souvigny?' I say, he must have good eyes to decide a close contest from such a place. Do be quiet, they're hoisting the flag. Here they come. Look out. The first one is Cousinus. A red and yellow flag waved in the air from the top of the starting post. The horses arrived one by one, led by stable lads, the jockeys in the saddle, their arms hanging down and looking mere bright specks in the sunshine. After Cousinus, Azar and Boom appeared. Then a murmur greeted Spirit, a tall, handsome bay whose harsh colors, lemon and black, had a Britannic sadness. Valerio, too, met with a grand reception. He was a lively little animal, and the colors were pale green edged with pink. Vendeuvre's two horses were a long time making their appearance. At length the blue and white colors were seen following Frangipane, but Lusignan, a very dark bay of irreproachable form was almost forgotten in the surprise created by Nana's appearance. No one had ever before seen her thus. The sunshine gave the chestnut filly the golden hue of a fair-haired girl. 
She glittered in the light like a new Louis, with her deep chest, her graceful head and neck and shoulders, and her long, nervous, delicate back. Why, she has hair the color of mine, exclaimed Nana, delighted. I feel quite proud of her. They all climbed on to the landau. Bordenave almost trod on little Louis, whom his mother had forgotten. He caught hold of him, grumbling in a paternal manner, and lifting him on to his shoulder, he murmured, "'Poor young'un, he must see too. Wait a minute, and I'll show you your mamma. There, over there, look at the Gigi.' And as Bijou was scratching his legs, he lifted him up also, whilst Nana, delighted with the animal that bore her name, glanced at the other women to see how they took it. They were all madly jealous.' At this moment, old Tricot on her cab, immovable until then, waved her hands and shouted some instructions to a bookmaker over the crowd. Her instinct prompted her. She backed Nana. La Faloise was making an unbearable row, however. He was quite smitten with Frangipane. I've an inspiration, he cried. Just look at Frangipane. See what go there is in him. I take Frangipane at eight to one. Who'll bet? Do be quiet, La Bordette ended by saying. You'll only regret it all by and by. Frangipane's a jade, declared Philippe. He is already wet with perspiration. Look, they're going to canter. The horses had turned to the right and they started on their preliminary canter, passing in front of the grandstand in a disordered crowd. Then the excited remarks broke out again. Everyone spoke at the same time. Lusignan is in good condition, but he is too long in the back. You know, not a farthing on Valerio, too. He is nervous. He holds his head too high. It's a bad sign. Hallo! It's Byrne who is riding spirit. I tell you, he has no shoulder. A good shoulder means everything. No, spirit is decidedly too quiet. Listen, I saw Nana after the race for the Grand Poule des Produits. She was soaking her coat as though dead and breathing fit to burst. Twenty louis she isn't placed. Enough, enough. What a confounded nuisance he is with his frangipane. It's too late. They're going to start. La Faloise, almost crying, was struggling to get to a bookmaker. The others had to reason with him. All the necks were stretched out. But the first start was not a good one. The starter, who in the distance looked like a thin black stick, had not lowered his red flag. The horses returned to the post after a short gallop. There were two other false starts. At length, the starter, getting the horses all well together, sent them off with a skill that won admiration on all sides. Magnificent start! No, it is chance! Never mind, they're off! The noise died away in the anxiety which filled every breast. Now the betting ceased. The game was being played on the immense course. Complete silence reigned at last, as though all breathing was suspended. Faces were raised, white and trembling. At the start, Hazard and Cousineus had made the running, leading all the others. Valerio, too, followed close behind them. The rest came on in a confused mass. When they passed in front of the stands, shaking the earth, and with the sudden gust of wind caused by their immense speed, the group had stretched out to fully forty lengths. Frangipane was last. Nana was a little behind Lusignan in spirit. The deuce, murmured La Bordette. The English one is picking his way well through them. Everyone in the landau had something to say, some exclamation to utter. 
all stood upon tiptoe and watched intently the bright colors of the jockeys borne along in the sunshine. As they ascended the incline, Valerio too took the lead. Cousinus and Azar were losing ground, whilst Lusignan and Spirit neck and neck were still followed closely by Nana. Damn it! The English horse has won! That's quite plain, said Bordenave. Lusignan is tiring, and Valerio too can't stay. Well, it is disgusting if the English horse wins, exclaimed Philippe in a burst of patriotic grief. A feeling of anguish gradually overwhelmed that mob of people. Another defeat! And a wish of extraordinary ardor amounted almost to a prayer, for Lusignan's success was inwardly expressed by all, whilst they abused spirit in his funereal-looking jockey. The crowd scattered over the grass broke up into bands who were running with all their might. Horsemen galloped swiftly over the ground, and Nana, turning slowly round, beheld at her feet that surging mob of men and animals, that sea of heads looking as though dashed about and carried along the course by the vortex of the race, streaking the bright horizon of the jockeys. She watched the fast-stepping legs, which, as the distance increased, assumed the slenderness of hairs. Now, at the farthest limit of the circle, she saw them sideways, looking so small and slight against the green background of the bois. Then suddenly they disappeared behind a large cluster of trees close to the course. "'Don't despair!' cried Georges, still full of hope. "'It's not over yet. The English horse is caught.' But La Faloise, again overcome by his disdain for the national cause, became quite scandalous in his applause of spirit. "'Bravo! It served them right!' France was in need of the lesson. Spirit first and Frangipan second. It would aggravate his fatherland. La Bordette, whom he thoroughly exasperated, seriously threatened to throw him out of the carriage. We'll see how long they take, quietly observed Bordenave, who, with little Louis on his shoulder, had pulled out his watch. One by one the horses reappeared from behind the clump of trees. Then the crowd uttered a long murmur of amazement. Valerio, too, still had the lead, but Spirit was gaining on him, and Lusignan, who was next, had given way whilst another horse was taking his place. The spectators could not understand it at first. They mixed up the colors. Exclamations arose on all sides. But it is Nana. Nana? Absurd. I tell you, Lusignan still keeps his place. Yes, it is, though. It is Nana. It is easy to recognize her by her golden color. There. Look at her now. She seems all on fire. Bravo, Nana. There's an artful minx for you. Bah, it's nothing. She's only making the running for Lusignan. For some seconds that was the general opinion. But the filly slowly continued to gain ground in a continued effort. Then an immense emotion seized upon all. The horses in the rear no longer excited the smallest interest. A last struggle began between Spirit, Nana, Lusignan, and Valerio too. Their names were on the lips of everyone. Their progress or their falling off was proclaimed in short, disconnected sentences. And Nana, who had climbed on to the coachman's seat as though lifted up by some invisible power, was all pale and trembling, and so deeply moved that she could not say a word. La Bordette, close beside her, was once more smiling. "'Well, the English horse is in difficulties,' said Philippe joyfully. He is not going so well. Anyhow, Lusignan is done for, cried La Faloise. Valerio, too, leads the way. Look, there they are, the whole four of them close together. The same words came from every throat. What a rate they're going at. 
Oh, what a frightful rate! Nana now beheld the group coming towards her like a flash of lightning. You could feel their approach, and almost their breathing, a distant roar which grew louder and louder every second. The whole crowd impetuously rushed to the barriers, and preceding the horses, a heavy clamor escaped from every chest, coming nearer and nearer with a sound like the ocean breaking on the shore. It was the final outburst of brutal passion aroused by a colossal venture, a hundred thousand spectators with one fixed idea, burning with the same hankering for luck, following with their eyes those animals whose gallop carried off millions. They shoved and trampled on one another, with clenched fists and open mouths, each one for himself, and urging on his favorite with his voice and gestures. And the cry of this vast multitude, which was like the roar of some savage beast, became more and more distinct. Here they come! Here they come! Here they come! But Nana continued to gain ground. Now Valerio, too, was distanced, and she led with spirit by two or three necks. The rumbling noise resembling thunder increased. As they came on, a tempest of oaths greeted them from the landau. Gee up, Lusignan, you big coward, you sorry beast! Look at the English one! Isn't he grand? Go it, old fellow, go it! And that Valerio, it's disgusting! Ah, the carrion! My ten louis are nowhere now. There's only Nana in it. Bravo, Nana! Bravo, little slut! And Nana on the coachman's box was swinging her hips and thighs without knowing she did so as though she herself was running. She kept protruding her body under the notion that it helped the filly along. And each time she did so she sighed wearily and said in a low painful tone of voice, Go it! Go it! Go it! A grand sight was then beheld. Price, erect in the stirrups, his whip raised, flogged Nana with an iron arm. That old dried-up child, that long figure usually looking so hard and dead, seemed shooting sparks of fire, and in a burst of furious audacity, of triumphant will, he instilled some of his own spirit into the filly. He kept her up, he carried her along, covered with foam and with eyes all bloody. The cluster of horses passed like a flash of lightning, sweeping the air, taking away the breath of all who saw them, whilst the judge on the lookout calmly awaited. Then there arose an immense cheer. With a final effort, Price had lifted Nana to the post, beating spirit by a head. The clamor that burst forth was like the roar of the rising tide. Nana! 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 The cry rolled and grew with the violence of a tempest, gradually filling the air, from the innermost recesses of the Bois to Mount Valérien, from the meadows of Longchamp to the plain of Boulogne. Around Nana's landau a mad enthusiasm was displayed. Long live Nana! Long live France! Down with England! The women waved their parasols. Some men sprung into the air and turned round vociferously. Others, laughing nervously, flung up their hats and on the other side of the course the crowd in the enclosure responded. An agitation passed through the stands without one being able to discern anything distinctly beyond a commotion of the air, like the invisible flame of a brazier, above that living heap of little chaotic figures twisting their arms about, with black specks indicating their eyes and open mouths. The cry continued unceasingly, growing in intensity, caught up in the distance by the people camping beneath the trees, to spread again and increase itself with the emotion of the imperial stand where the empress joined in the applause. Nana! 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 The shout rose beneath the glorious sun, which stimulated the delirium of the crowd with a shower of gold.
Then Nana, standing on the box seat of her landau, stretched to her full height, thought it was she that they were applauding. For an instant she stood immovable in the astonishment of her triumph, watching the course invaded by a host so compact, by such a sea of black hats, that the grass could no longer be seen. Then, when all that mob had taken up its position, leaving a narrow passage to the entrance of the course, acclaiming Nana again as she retired with Price, broken in appearance, lifeless and as though empty, the young woman violently slapped her thighs, forgetting everything as she gave vent to her triumph in the coarsest language. Ah, damn it all! It's me, though! Ah, damn it all! What luck! And not knowing how to show the joy that was overwhelming her, she seized hold of and kissed little Louis, whom she had just caught sight of on Baudenave's shoulders. Three minutes and fourteen seconds, said the latter, putting his watch back into his pocket. Nana still listened to her name with which the whole plain resounded. It was her people who applauded her, whilst in a straight line with the sun she throned over them, with her hair shining like a star and her blue and white dress of the color of the heavens. La Bordette, before hastening away, told her that she had won two thousand louis, for he had placed her fifty louis on Nana at forty to one. But the money affected her less than that unexpected victory, the splendor of which made her queen of Paris. The other women had all lost. Rose Mignon, in a fit of passion, had broken her parasol, and Caroline Equet and Clarisse and Simone and even Lucy Stewart, in spite of her son's presence, all swore in an undertone exasperated by that big girl's luck, whilst old Tricon, who had crossed herself both at the start and the finish of the race, towered above them to the full height of her tall body, delighted at her discernment, and, like an experienced matron, canonizing Nana. Around the landau, however, the rush of men increased. The band had uttered the most ferocious yells. Georges, almost choked, continued to shout by himself in a broken voice. As the champagne ran short, Philippe, taking the two grooms with him, hastened off to the refreshment tents. And Nana's court grew larger and larger. Her triumph determined the laggards. The movement which had made her Landau the central object ended in an apotheosis. Queen Venus surrounded by her delirious subjects. Behind her, Bordenave was muttering oaths with the tender feelings of a father. Steiner himself, reconquered, had left Simone and was hanging on to one of the carriage steps. When the champagne arrived, when she raised her glass full of wine, the applause was so deafening, the cries of Nana, Nana, Nana were so loud, that the amazed multitude looked around expecting to see the filly, and one no longer knew whether it was the animal or the woman who most filled the men's hearts. Mignon hastened to her in spite of Rose's black looks. The confounded girl put him quite beside himself. He must embrace her. Then, after he had kissed her on both cheeks, he said paternally, What bothers me is that Rose will now, for certain, send the letter. She is in such a rage. So much the better. That's just what I want, said Nana, forgetting herself. But seeing him lost in astonishment at her words, she hastened to add, No, no, whatever am I saying? Really, I no longer know what I say. I'm tipsy and indeed she was intoxicated with joy and with the sunshine, as with her glass raised on high she applauded herself. To Nana! To Nana! cried she, in the midst of a still greater increase of uproar, laughter, and cheers which little by little gained the entire race-course. The races were drawing to a close. They were now running for the Vaublanc Prize. 
vehicles were departing one by one. Vandeuvre's name was frequently uttered in the midst of squabbles. Now it was clear. For two years past, Vandeuvre had been preparing for this exploit by always instructing Gresham to pull Nana. And he had only produced Lusignan to make the running for the filly. The losers lost their tempers whilst the winners shrugged their shoulders. What next? It was all right. An owner could manage his stable as he chose. There had been much queerer things done than that. The greater number of people considered Vendeuvre very smart to have secured through his friends all he could possibly get on Nana, which had explained the sudden rise in her price. They talked of two thousand louis at an average of thirty to one, which meant a gain of twelve hundred thousand francs, a sum so large that it commanded respect and excused everything. But other rumors, very grave ones which were whispered about, came from the enclosure. The men who returned from there brought details. Voices were raised as they related the particulars of a frightful scandal. That poor Vendeuvre was done for. He had spoiled his superb hit by a piece of errant stupidity, an idiotic robbery in commissioning Maréchal, a bookmaker whose affairs were in a very queer state, to place on his account two thousand louis against Lusignan, just for the sake of getting back his thousand and odd louis which he had openly bet on the horse, a mere nothing. And that was the fatal crack in the midst of his already tottering fortunes. The bookmaker warned that the favorite would not win had made about sixty thousand francs by the horse. Only La Bordette, not having received exact and detailed instructions, had gone and placed with him two hundred louis on Nana, which he, in his ignorance of what was going to be done, continued to lay at fifty to one against. Done out of one hundred thousand francs by the filly, with a clear loss of forty thousand, Marichal, who felt everything giving way beneath him, had suddenly understood all on seeing La Bordette and the Count conversing together after the race in front of the weighing-place. And with the fury of an old coachman and the rough manner of a man who has been robbed, he had just created a frightful disturbance before everyone, telling the story in most atrocious language and gathering a mob around him. It was added that the stewards were about to inquire into the matter. Nana, whom Philippe and Georges were quietly informing of what had happened, kept making reflections, without, however, ceasing to laugh and to drink. It was, after all, very likely she recollected certain things, and then that Maréchal was a horrid fellow. Yet she still doubted when La Bordette appeared. He was very pale. Well? queried she in a low voice. It's all up with him, he replied simply. And he shrugged his shoulders. He had acted like a child, this Vendeuvre. She made a gesture of being bored. That night at Mabie, Nana met with a colossal success. When she arrived towards ten o'clock, the uproar was already formidable. This classic night of folly gathered together all the gallant youth of the capital, an aristocratic company indulging in horseplay and a stupidity worthy of lackeys. There was quite a crush beneath the garlands of flaring gas jets, a mass of dress-suits, of extravagant costumes. Women with bare shoulders in old dresses only fit for soiling walked round and yelled, stimulated by drinking on a gigantic scale. At thirty paces one could no longer hear the brass instruments of the orchestra. No one danced. Idiotic remarks, repeated no one knew why, circulated among the groups. They all exerted themselves, but without succeeding in being funny. Seven women shut up in the cloak-room cried to be delivered. A shallot picked up and sold by auction fetched two louis. Just then Nana arrived, still dressed in the blue and white costume that she wore at the races. The shallot was presented to her in the midst of a thunder of applause. 
they seized hold of her in spite of her struggles, and three gentlemen carried her in triumph into the garden, across the ruined lawns and the damaged beds of flowers and shrubs, and as the orchestra was in the way, they took it by assault and smashed the chairs and desks. A paternal police organized the riot. It was not till the Tuesday that Nana felt quite recovered from the emotions of her victory. She was talking that morning with Madame Lerat, come to give her news of little Louis, who had been unwell ever since his outing. She was highly interested in an event which at that moment was occupying Paris. Vendeuvre warned off all the race-courses, his name withdrawn the same night from the list of members of the Cercle Imperial, had on the morrow set fire to his stable, and had been burned with his horses. "'He told me he would,' the young woman was saying. "'Ah, the young fellow was a regular madman. It gave me such a fright last night when I heard of it. You see, he might very well have murdered me one night. And besides, oughtn't he to have told me about his horse?' I should at least have made my fortune. He said to La Bordette that if I was let into the secret I would at once tell my hairdresser and a host of other men. How very polite! Ah, no, really, I can't regret him much. After thinking the matter over she had become furious. At that moment La Bordette entered the room. He had been collecting her winnings for her and brought her about forty thousand francs. That only added to her ill-humour, for she ought to have won a million. La Bordette, who pretended to be very innocent in the matter, boldly forsook Vendeuvre altogether. Those ancient families were all done for. They always came to grief in a ridiculous manner. Oh, no, said Nana. It is not ridiculous to set oneself afire like that in a stable. I think he ended grandly. Oh, you know I'm not defending his affair with Maréchal. Now that was ridiculous. When I think that Blanche had the idiocy to pretend that I was the cause of it all, I said to her, Did I tell him to steal? I suppose one may ask a man for money without driving him to commit a crime. If he had said to me, I've nothing more, I should have rejoined, Very well, we'd better part. And that would have been the end of it. No doubt, observed the aunt gravely. When men become obstinate, it is so much the worse for them. But as for the closing scene, Oh, it was indeed grand, resumed Nana. It seems that it was terrible. The thought of it makes my flesh creep. He got everybody out of the way and shut himself inside with some petroleum. And it blazed away. Ah, it must have been a sight. Just fancy, a big place like that nearly all of wood and full of hay and straw. The flames, they say, rose nearly as high as steeples. The best part was the horses, who didn't want to be roasted. They were heard kicking and flinging themselves against the doors, and uttering cries like human beings. Some of the people there nearly died from fright. La Bordette gave a low whistle of incredulity. He did not believe in Vendeuvre's death. One person swore that he had seen him get out through a window. He had set fire to his stable in a fit of madness, only as soon as it began to get warm it probably brought him to his senses again. A man who behaved so stupidly with women, so empty-headed, was not capable of dying in such a grand style. Nana's illusions were dispelled as she listened to him, and she merely made this remark. Oh, the wretch! It was such a grand ending! End of chapter 11